John's granddad basically replied to them, well, sometimes I'm out there fishing for fish, but a lot of the time I'm out there fishing for epiphanies. And I think, again, it comes down to this, like, take your time off seriously and see it as an investment into what you're doing. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Max Frenzel, who co-authored Time Off, a practical guide to building your rest ethic and finding success without the stress with John Fitch. Max is an AI researcher, writer, digital creative who holds a PhD in quantum information theory. John is a business coach, angel investor, and writer. He's a recovering workaholic who wrote this book for a former version of himself. I really loved this book, but it helped me to see a few new things, a few fine tweaks that I could make, and it validated a lot of things that I think I'm doing well, and you probably are too. But as we know, there's a lot that each of us can learn. We pride ourselves on working hard, having a work ethic, being productive and being busy. But do we ever think about having a rest ethic? As Max explains in this interview, it's like the inhalation and exhalation. But if we're always breathing in, breathing in, breathing in, are we ever giving ourselves the rest that is its own gift and also allows us to work more effectively, bring our best effort and our full selves to our work, our relationships, and all of our lives? In this interview, we talk about how our creativity benefits from developing a rest ethic. We also talk about sleep as the backbone of a rest ethic. We talk about exercise. And we talk a little bit about solitude, but all in all, this book is very timely for the world in which we live and the ideas in this book and in this interview have the potential to change your life. You can learn more about this book at timeoffbook.com. So I hope that you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my new friend, Max Frenzel. Max, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks so much for having me on, Brilliant. I really love the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you today about your new book, Time Off, a practical guide for building your rest ethic and finding success without the stress. But before we get into all that, will you tell me, please, what's life about? <laughs> well, how much time do we have? <laughs> We've got a while. <laughs> I think the physicist in me wants to say something like it's all about entropy, but this would probably take us down a whole different rabbit hole. So... Huh, what's life all about? I think in a way we're all looking for some kind of meaning and I'd say life is all about this search for meaning. Whatever that means, and I guess the whole point is everyone has to define this meaning for themselves. But I think ultimately what we're all looking for is something that fills us with a sense of meaning. So maybe that's what life is all about. <laughs> Let's talk for a moment about entropy. 
That's not <laughs> an answer anyone has even mentioned in their response to that question yet in nearly a hundred interviews. And I understand you have a PhD in mm. physics. Yeah. Is it a certain branch, theoretical physics, something? Yeah. What, what is it? So I did quantum information theory. So probably most people know about the field from quantum computing. That's probably the most relevant, well, most well-known sub-area of quantum information theory. But I was looking into an area called quantum thermodynamics. So I was actually studying how well, thermodynamics traditionally is a study of how do you convert heat into useful energy. So how does an engine work, for example? But we were looking at the same thing on the quantum level, so really on the microscopic level and like studying things like what's the theoretically smallest engine you can build that was a question i was looking into and it turns out you can actually build an engine within a single atom so you steer the thing with lasers and yeah it gets quite weird but also i was very interested in the role of time in all of this because if you think about an engine and it's already in a name thermodynamics you need something dynamic so you need to have a notion of time baked into all of this an engine that doesn't move and movement is related to time is not really a useful engine it's not an engine at all so i was actually studying what happens to clocks or things that give you time at this quantum scale and all sorts of weird stuff happens to clocks on the quantum scale to these microscopic time givers they start getting fuzzy in a way they start degrading they almost tick off into different directions at the same time it's almost like with every tick of the clock your pointer kind of splits into multiple pointers and you have to keep measuring it to kind of project it back into its original state essentially what we showed is the things get fuzzy you lose a notion of time. But so you need to do extra steps at the quantum level to actually stabilize your clock, which you don't have to do in a macroscopic engine. <laughs> I think we're getting very much off topic here. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> well, I am, I am deeply curious and I love learning about that. And even the fact that you can build an engine in a single atom is really mind boggling to me. But let me go back to this topic then about entropy. When I ask, what is life about? And you respond with the physicist and you wants to answer entropy. What do you mean? Can you give us a thumbnail of that? Something that I can understand? <laughs> sure. So I also don't want to make a fool of myself. I've been out of physics for a little bit now. I've not been too close into it. But entropy in general is a sense, it's a measure of disorder in a way. So one of the most fundamental laws in physics, maybe the most fundamental law, depending on who you ask, is this second law of thermodynamics, which essentially states that entropy on average or in the whole universe is always increasing. So we're going from more order to less order in a way. The universe expands. This is true inside my household. I have evidence for this. <laughs> exactly. A lot of yeah. people know this from their living room, like entropy, the chaos keeps increasing. And my email inbox. Absolutely. I'm sure someone has studied the entropy of email inboxes, or if <laughs> not, they definitely should. But yeah, on average, this kind of disorder keeps increasing. Life is one of the few things. So the second law only applies globally, but in a local area, you can actually fight back against this increase of entropy. So you can create more order locally. You sacrifice, like globally, you have to make more disorders somewhere else. But life is doing exactly that. Like it keeps its own thing, its own state, very ordered, 
um, at the exp- expense of other things around. Again, it probably applies to a lot of different things in life as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that life feeds on life, mm. right? So that's an interesting thought to me that entropy, you know, to create order in a local area does depend on contributing to entropy somewhere else. Absolutely, exactly. Like you can't fight back the very, very best thing you could do if you do everything reversible and in a super moment sustainable is maybe a hand wavy term but let's say sustainable way the best thing you can do globally is keep entropy at a constant value but things don't happen in a reversible way so overall this increases which means if you lowering the disorder locally somewhere else it needs to increase right i mean basic example is a fridge it might not seem connected but inside the fridge you're cooling things down but you're doing that at the expense of actually pumping much more heat to the outside right it's not a zero-sum game there you're actually creating more heat on average you just kind of locally in your fridge it gets cold but everything around it it gets hotter same kind of thing is true with entropy Interesting. So then when your response touches on the answer to what is life about is entropy, are you saying that then life is about resisting entropy or life is about the force of entropy acting on everything? Mm. I didn't quite think it through all that deep when I gave that <laughs> initial answer, but I think life is that thing that can actually, in a way, reverse entropy locally or reduce entropy locally. I think that's what's quite special about life in a way and what not many other... I'd have to think about that more deeply. And I know a lot of people have very seriously considered that relation of life and entropy and also the origin of life to entropy because actually the origin of life kind of goes almost against certain things in physics. But again, it's all about local versus global. But yeah, I really say life is that thing that can maybe on purpose or deliberately reduce entropy locally. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you for indulging my curiosity. Yeah, I hope all the physicists listening now are not thinking, oh my God, what's that guy talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would imagine that perhaps as a physicist, as a real scientist, that you probably have qualms when people start equating like the quantum field with what is it, the power of what is it, the secret and manifesting and but that's its own we could do a whole interview especially on that. with quantum <laughs> physics it's so people think they understand it, people want to use it to explain certain things because it's so difficult to understand and so there's a lot of interpretation involved as well but physicists do this in a very very specific way but then people come in and read all these things into it with like entanglement interference and all these things like well, I imagine also that the beginning of this interview, if we leave it unedited, although I've enjoyed it and I feel like I've been enriched <laughs> by it, we might have lost some listeners, but that's probably fine. And we have an editorial team to help tighten some of this up. But let me go in service to our listener. Let me ask you now about Time Off. Let me ask you about this book. I want to ask, why did you write this book? What would this book do for someone who reads it? Now, I finished it yesterday, by the way, and I really loved the book. But tell me, please, who did you write this book for and why? Yeah, so I think the whole story of how the book came about is quite unique in a way. So I'm also not the sole author of this. I co-authored that book with my friend John Fitch, who unfortunately can't make it today for wildfire and virus reasons. (laughs) But 
maybe I can give you the backstory of how we actually came to writing the book. So as you said, I did my PhD in quantum physics. I did that in London at Imperial College, and I was extremely lucky with the people I was working with. I had an amazing team and amazing supervisors, and essentially... I could do whatever I wanted. I had this kind of three, four year deadline of writing my thesis, but otherwise in between, it was really up to me what I did. And I could disappear from the country for weeks without even asking anyone. This sounds dangerous. It sounds dangerous uh, if you're not careful what you're doing. And I might've gotten myself into some slightly dangerous situations in between, but overall it was all good. And actually the benefits, if you really make use of that time properly are tremendous. And that's kind of what I found. So besides Besides doing my PhD, I also co-founded a company. I ran ultra marathons, which took a lot of training. I did all sorts of creative projects on the side. And I didn't feel busy at any point. And also, if I just didn't feel like doing research for a week or so, when I came back to it afterwards, I suddenly realized, oh my God, I have all these new ideas and all these new insights. So it wasn't like wasted time. It was really, well, we can get to that later, but it was incubation time. But then afterwards, I decided to leave academia. I enjoyed physics, but I wanted to do something more applied in a way. And also AI seemed like a very interesting field, especially with my physics skills and my math skills, where I could make some really interesting real world progress. So I joined a bunch of startups and slowly I realized that I was getting more and more busy but at the same time, less productive and creative. So I'm based in Japan. I took a one week trip on only local trains through the mountains in the northern half of Japan. And during that time, I was sitting in some beautiful local guest house in the middle of nowhere, sitting there with my notebook. And it really hit me that never in my life had I felt more busy and at the same time, less productive. And that's when I started thinking back to my PhD days and hey, I had a completely different experience there and what went wrong, like what happened. And that's when I started writing about the topic of workplace culture, time off, all these related topics. And eventually not many people read it, a bunch of friends, but over time, my Medium posts actually got quite a bit of traction. And it happened that John, my co-author, came across one of those. So John's backstory is also very interesting. He was always a typical type A personality, workaholic, founded several companies, but then within one week, his startup at the time failed and his girlfriend of many years walked out on him because he was such a workaholic. And that's kind of when his world came crashing down and he realized, hey, something needs to change. And there were a bunch of other things in John's story, but eventually he started a podcast on the topic of time off. And well, it was called time off, or it still is called time off. It's still around. And he came across one of my articles and he just asked me, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And I said, sure, let's do it. We did the interview. And a couple of months later, I think, we became friends. We stayed in touch. But a couple of months later, I found an email in my inbox saying, hey, do you want to write a book together? And that's kind of how the whole thing started out. And John's based in Austin, Texas, and I'm based here in Tokyo in Japan. And the funny thing is, to this day, we've never met in person. So we've probably spent literally hundreds of hours working together, being on Zoom calls. I know him better than many of my other close friends, but to this day, we've not met. I think it's really a great sign for what's actually possible with remote collaboration, especially right now. Yeah, I think you're right. That's really remarkable to me. And it's interesting to me how you had, as we all do, we have different stories, different paths, but in some ways you were walking 
the same path or a very similar path about getting busier, but not being happy right. or not feeling right. productive or satisfied. And I know that I find myself in periods like that, although I've worked personally, I've worked very hard to structure my life in a way that I think, you know, it's part of why I enjoyed your book is so much of it resonated with me going, That's wonderful. yep, yep, I'm doing that. There's a chance for fine tuning and so forth. But one of the things that really caught my attention about what you're talking about here is this idea of a rest ethic. And we value and celebrate a work ethic, right? Centuries of valuing this industriousness and get it done attitude and so forth. But what is it a rest ethic? Yeah, it's a great point that you brought that up. And it's really a term we want to make more popular, essentially, because as you said, everyone's aware of a rest ethic and everyone's very proud of their work ethic. And we should be because there's nothing wrong with getting things done. And I also want to say time off is not a book about being lazy or just beach vacations. Those are great. And there's a little bit about this type of rest in the book as well, but there's much more to it. You should really see rest and time off as an investment into your productivity and getting things done and really finding this meaning in your life. So we really want to encourage that people take a rest ethic as seriously as a work ethic. And we like to compare it to an in-breath and an out-breath, actually. Like the work ethic is essentially your in-breath but many people keep inhaling and forget the exhale part, but you can only inhale so long, right? It gets uncomfortable very, very quick. You need the exhale to relax and to restore yourself and to prepare yourself for the next inhale. So it's really this two sides of a coin. And we want people to take their rest as seriously as they take their work. I think especially now with a lot of people working at home, they realized how important or how necessary this rest ethic actually is. Because if you don't have a rest ethic, boundaries just completely disappear and work and life kind of blur into each other. So we really encourage people to A, be very conscious of how you use your time. Be very conscious of the types of rest you actually use. And then schedule them and protect them as much as you would protect a work meeting. So very curious, you say you already kind of organize your life in a way that you have a very good rest ethic. Can you tell us what your rest ethic looks like? Sure. Yeah. Some of the things that I do is, first of all, I have a morning routine and I have an evening routine that I observe very consistently and I will change it up when it feels stale or when it feels upstream. But part of what that looks like is I do meditate every morning, every night. It's about a 21 minute meditation. I don't miss it. It doesn't matter if I'm sick, if I feel like it, what time zone I'm in. It's just it's something I do. Also, I, I have a set of activities that I am committed to do every day, not necessarily at the same time, like to read for 30 minutes, to do a gratitude process with my wife before bed, where we will each share three things. We'll write them down. It's a great way to share with each other, to reflect on the day. Um, so we'll do that. And then I do as well, I have devoted days to specific activities. This is something that I took when I learned about what Jack Dorsey does how, you know, when he would run Twitter and Square and he would say like one day is for marketing, one day is for this company, one day is for this, one day is for finance and so forth. And I took an inspiration. So I looked at the days vertically that way to say this one, I'll focus on family business. This one, I'll focus on, you know, creative pursuits. This one, Fridays will be podcasting and so forth. But then within looking at the days vertically, then I slice it horizontally and say the morning and the afternoon, I do a startup and a wrap up with my assistant 
to talk about anything that came in, any priorities or urgent communications. And then I'm home at 6 p.m. for dinner, which now we're all home, almost all of us for the <laughs> pandemic. But even you know, for years, I've been home at 6 p.m., dinner with the kids, usually play some games, go for a walk. Bedtime is consistent, stories, reading. So those are a few of the things. And then exercise. What you've said in your book about exercise really, really resonated with me. If I don't manage to do both cardio and strength training every day, my mood, it's like, that's how I keep the emotional wolves at bay. You know, it's one of the big, big things. And then with sleep, that's the one where your book reminded me, holy cow, what an opportunity. So anyway, that's a thumbnail of mine, but yeah. Okay. So back to this thing about a rest ethic, I appreciate you breaking that down and sharing this, this way. Part of what you also talk about early in the book that might serve the listener here is this idea, an ancient idea of noble leisure. What is noble leisure? Yeah. So the book opens with basically the history of time off and how we came to forget the value of time off and leisure, because that's actually something very, very modern, only the last two, three hundred years. And was basically, well, I don't want to go too far into that, but essentially a bunch of rich people were worried about poorer people not spending their time properly and just rioting and getting drunk. So they used religion as kind of this cover or justification for why people should be working all the time. And over the centuries... Sorry to jump in. Some people are leaning in right now and some people are tuning off. <laughs> but that's fine. Right? Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's great. Okay. So keep going. So there's this fear that the masses, so to speak. Exactly. This Protestant work ethic essentially was then used or made up as basically God gave us this time to finish his creation. So we should spend our time working and not slacking off. And we've kind of forgotten this religious justification nowadays, but the core idea is so deep in our culture today. And we're still really feeling that guilt of not working. But if you go back 2000 years to ancient Roman Greece, it was very, very different. Actually, people aspired to not having to work and Bertrand Russell much more recent again it was like early 20th century he said like basically all of civilization all of culture was built by this leisure class it was built by the people who could spend time freely to think deeply and to do science to get into literature to get into all these different things and hopefully now with modern technology i mean russell already said the beginning of the 20th century more and more people can join this leisure class i think we can get into that much more deeply later maybe but maybe let's go back to ancient roman greece and our in particular. So he brought up this idea of noble leisure. To him, what we today call knowledge work, this thinking, this philosophizing, to him it was noble leisure. And he had a hierarchy and rest and leisure were very different things to him. Rest was at the bottom of the hierarchy. Basically, rest always asked the question, rest for what? And the answer is usually rest to do more work, right? Then work was sort of in the middle of the hierarchy. It was necessary but essentially it just supported you to really focus on leisure. And leisure in his sense, in his noble sense, was defined through something that brings you meaning. And I think that's very interesting because what that means to every individual can be very different. And things that look like work to one person might actually be noble leisure to 
to another person, right? Yeah, so I think there's quite a few different things to that. As you said, like rest can actually be very, very active. Like the forms of noble leisure I described earlier, they are all very active in a way. And even though they're active, they leave you much more energized. I'm sure a lot of people have the experience of doing the passive kind of rest where they just in front of Netflix or on their phone, like swiping Instagram or Tinder or whatever all day long, but they're left actually much more drained afterwards. And also, I think often those things just paper over an underdeveloped leisure life and paper over that void that we feel because of a lack of or an absence of meaning. Those things don't really fill your life with meaning. They just distract you from thinking about that absence of meaning, right? So in a lot of cases, the most productive or most restful rest is actually, yeah, very active. And it's also tied to this idea of flow states. I'm sure we all know if we get into a flow state, and often that happens if we're actually doing something fairly difficult. I think by definition, flow happens when you sort of at the boundary of challenging yourself too much that it gets really, really crazy difficult, but you need to, it needs to be difficult enough that you're actually fully engaged and you really need to be fully present. You can't think about all the different distractions, all the things that happened at work, all the things you wish you would have said, but didn't say you really need to be fully engaged. And that requires a level of difficulty in a way. But then when you get into this flow state, things just happen magically and suddenly after two hours you look up and wow did already two hours pass I feel amazing and I did amazing stuff in that time again it filled my life with meaning often I think the days that feel the busiest are the days that we actually get the least done and the least done in many different ways like they don't fill us with this sense of accomplishment and the sense of that we did something meaningful, but also more in a just productivity sense. Like on the days you feel busiest, sure, you might have answered a lot of emails, but you didn't really make that impactful progress. I really had that big idea that's going to bring you forward tremendously, right? Those are often the days where actually, hmm, I didn't really work all that much, but I had this big breakthrough idea. So I think what people need to realize is that time is not really additive or time spent on working is not cumulative in a way. So what that means is two hours at 50% of your capacity does not equal one hour at 100% capacity, right? And I think a lot of people, because they don't have a rest ethic, they try to overcompensate with just putting in more hours and then spend a lot of hours at say 20%. But just a single hour at 100%, you might have breakthroughs that you might not have in, I don't know, 100 hours at this lower capacity. And yeah, I might be, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here. That is definitely in the direction of, you know, what I was interested to get to, because as I attempt to kind of lead this conversation in a way that serves a listener to help them understand, you know, a concept that maybe they hadn't seen for themselves before, but then we go beyond the idea and say, okay, how can I apply this for my own life, right? And what I'm hearing then is a couple things. And again, you can correct or add to this, but one is there is a form of rest. There is a way we can develop our own rest ethic in that whatever we are doing, you know, as you said, preparing a meal, or maybe we're exploring, or maybe we're in a creative, you know, pursuit in a flow state that is in and of itself valuable. It's rewarding or meaningful. Then there's this other aspect 
you know, maybe goes hand in hand with that, which is about bringing our full self to whatever we're doing, right? And not, as you're saying, not trying to just compensate for however much there is to do or how busy I am by logging more hours, but by bringing more of our self either to our work or to our time off. So with that, what really stands out to me, you include a lot of great, I don't know how you think of them, profiles or portraits mm. of people in the book, right? And the two, if I'm remembering, is it Henri Poincaré? I'm totally butchering uh, his Henry name. Henri Pon- oh, I don't know. My French is also not Poincaré. right? So, and Charles Darwin. And then I yeah. think there was one more that these scientists or artists who worked, they actually didn't work all that much. Will you talk about a couple of these people who've made significant contributions and what their rest ethic looked like, maybe to paint a picture for the listener of what could this look like for me? No, I think that's a great question because so far we've probably talked about these very general and broad topics, but actually the book, so it's split into several deep dive chapters. So there's a chapter on sleep, there's a chapter on exercise, a chapter on solitude, which goes into sort of the science of why this is good, why it works, but also a lot of stories. But in between, we have these very clear profiles of people who found success, not in spite of taking time off, but because of taking time off. And each of those profiles ends with a very practical advice, something everyone can try for themselves. And one thing we really wanted to do is have very different kinds of people. So one profile in the book is Richard Branson. He has a great rest ethic, but he might not be the most relatable person in several ways. Yeah, I would think it's easy to have a rest ethic when you've got your own island. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of the thing. So he, he's a great example, but he might not be the most yeah relatable to the average guy. Also, like those great scientists, they're amazing examples, but they're maybe, again, not the most relatable, even though I think everyone can actually pick something from those people's habits. But we also have very normal, average people down somewhere in the corporate hierarchy. And we have writers, we have scientists, we have Roman emperors, we have Greek gods. So it's a big variety. We really want people to find their own rest ethic. We don't think there's a one size fits all approach. But maybe back to your question. So some of the examples, uh, Henry Poincaré, I think. So his accomplishments are ridiculous. He was a mathematician, a physicist. He was described by several people as the last true universalist and the last true polymath. Like just describing his accomplishments would fill several books. But he set himself, I think he worked essentially two 90-hour blocks every day. And he was very strict about that. Um, but everything else he spent in this noble leisure. He took very, very long walks. He went on a lot of trips. And often his greatest insights came to him in moments of downtime. Like there's a story in the book where he was struggling with a problem and really banging his head against that problem for weeks. But then he was really disappointed in himself and said, okay, screw it, I'm going to take a break. And he went on a two-week holiday, essentially. And there's a moment where he stepped on a bus during that trip and suddenly the answer to his question came fully formed in his mind and he later just had to write it down. And there's so many stories like that in the book, especially in the sciences. And in the chapter on creativity, we actually break that theory down a little bit. So Graham Wallace wrote a theory of creativity. I think he did it in the early 20th century as well, but it's still cited a lot by creativity researchers today. So people have refined it, but the core idea still stands. And essentially, he 
broke the creative process down into four phases. So we have preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. Preparation, you actually have to sit down, you do the hard work. It was Poincaré banging his head against the problem. But then incubation happens when you're actually stepping away from the problem, like you need to get this distance. And that's when your subconscious mind takes over and starts working on the problem in very different ways. It makes much looser associations. Like if you're always too deep in the problem, you can't really see those distant connections. Essentially, creativity to me is about connecting the distant dots. But if you're having your head against a problem, you can't even see those distant dots. You're only connecting kind of nearest neighbors, stale ideas, boring stuff. But once you step away and your subconscious takes over, you're really bringing all these different views together without even you noticing that something's actively happening. And then suddenly when the time is right, that illumination moment happens, that's the light bulb moment. Then you really have that idea. And then you need to sit down again for the verification stage, because often those light bulb ideas seem amazing in the moment, but are actually just really stupid ideas. But sometimes you also do have the brilliant breakthroughs and then you can go into this verification stage. And often then a cycle starts because then you move on to another preparation stage and so on. But I think the key takeaway here is that two of the four phases of this creative process are passive in a way. Like they're essentially your rest ethic rather than your work ethic. This whole incubation and illumination stage, they're basically a gift from your subconscious if you allow your subconscious this long leash. And again, you were talking about distractions earlier. This does not happen if you're distracted by I don't know, clicking from one YouTube video to the next, you don't allow your mind that long leash that it needs to make those discoveries. Those things happen to you when you're on a hike out in nature, or when you're fully immersed in a flow state or cooking for your family or doing these kind of very meaningful things. That's when your subconscious gets really active and thinks over those problems. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. And thanks for breaking that down that way. Because this to me just shows again how valuable, maybe even critical rest is to the work that we do as creatives. I know not everybody is a knowledge worker, not everybody is a creative, but many of us are and more and more all the time before we get replaced by machines. But even as we do, that's what makes this still even exactly. more valuable, right? Even more so, more and more. Yeah. So let me ask you, I want to ask a few things specifically about kind of the how to. So let's start maybe with sleep. And I think you use the word you write a good sleep routine should be a core part of everyone's rest ethic. So I think, as I said earlier, we really don't think that there's a one size fits all approach to your rest ethic, like that should look different for everyone and noble leisure should look different for everyone. And you have to find out what that means to you. But I think the one thing that's universal is good sleep. I know for myself, like I need quite a lot of sleep. I know if I get less than eight hours a night, the next day is not going to be great. If I get less than seven hours, the next day is going to be completely wasted, right? Sleep is just so fundamental and it's an amplifier for everything else, especially the bad things, actually. Like if you in a bad mood, if you don't sleep well, well, that's going to be amplified by 10. So I think focusing on your sleep routine is probably a good 
first step for a lot of people. And just small changes can actually make a big difference. You were saying earlier you have a nighttime routine. I think that's a very, very helpful kind of shutting off your brain from the daily grind and from the problem solving mode to a different mode and like telling your brain, okay, now it's time to sleep. This is my shutdown routine. I have a very concrete like evening routine as well. So in the evening, I always read fiction and I know an hour before I go to bed, I switch off all the screens. I switch off all my electronic devices and I just sit there and read for an hour or so. And I read fiction specifically because that kind of gets my brain out of the problem solving mind into a more kind of story mind, preparing myself almost for dreaming, right? And there's so many small things you can do about your sleep environment as well. Like a lot of people talk about this idea of sleep hygiene. So your bedroom should be dark. It should be actually much cooler than most people think. I mean, think back, we used to sleep in caves. They didn't have like central heating or anything like that. So our body's actually made to sleep at quite a cool level. Also, one of the things that I, I'm a very light sleeper and I need to be kind of in my own space and even like small disturbances around me wake me up quite easily. And Matthew Walker, he's one of the profiles we have in a book. He's probably the most well-known sleep scientist. He wrote a great book. I think it's called Why We Sleep. Probably a lot of people know of it. And he recommends this idea of a sleep divorce, right? So if you're used to sleeping with your partner, just try actually sleeping in separate bedrooms. And you might realize like, if you tell people, they might think, oh, something has to be wrong with your relationship. But you might actually realize that your relationship improves dramatically from that. Because again, like if you don't have enough sleep, your emotional judgment suffers. You're much easier to anger. You might get into much more arguments. But if you just, I don't know, spend the evening together, again, have a routine, cuddle, do whatever, but then go into your separate bedrooms, have a wonderful night of sleep, and then in the morning, reconnect again. So there's these little things that I think everyone can try for themselves. It might not work for everyone, but everyone can experiment and hopefully get much better sleep as a result. Yeah. One of the things that really landed with me as I read what you included in this book about sleep is, first of all, none of this is difficult, I don't think. I mean, telling your partner you want a sleep divorce, that might be <laughs> a little difficult. I actually contemplated you know, talking to my wife about doing that. And I thought, I like sleeping in the same bed with her, but, <laughs> but aside from that one, perhaps, like you're saying, having what I might say, the discipline or the willingness to switch your screens off an hour before bed or turning the temperature down or just having a routine, going to bed at the same time or waking at the same time, these kinds of things. And while there's no one size fits all, there are many of these things that are not only, you know, scientifically validated, but also many people report in their experience. And so I think this is an opportunity. It was certainly an opportunity for me. It's an opportunity for people listening to really look seriously. Look, if I want to improve the quality of my life, of my experience and of the results I produce, it's not magic, right? But it is a willingness. The other thing that landed with me is I think a lot about, I've learned a lot from Tony Robbins over the last few years in particular. And one of the things that I feel is such a gift that I've learned from him is this idea of state is primary. Right. And that what creates our emotion is our physiology first, our focus and our language. And the thing that I realized, like you said, late at night or when we're tired, it's easy to get into an argument or to have an upset or to be childish or whatever. And I thought, man, if I'm really serious about living in a peak state or living in what people might call a positive, I don't like 
the word positive, but living in a really empowered state, what better gift could I give myself and the people around me than being well rested from a sleep? Exactly. Sleep routine. And I think the point, the people around you is also so important. It's not just with your family, but I think also business leaders should take really serious notice of that. I'm sure we all know a boss or leader who's very quick to anger, very irrational, doesn't really understand their team very well, and basically doesn't really seem to have the right empathy. Those are often exactly the same people who pride themselves in how, look how busy I am, look how I'm grinding things out, and also look how little sleep I need, right? So a lot of these things uh, around time off and like building a rest ethic, it develops also your empathy in a way. And I think as we talked about earlier a little bit already, as more and more busy work is going to be automated and taken over by machines and AI, what we as humans will be left with and actually i think that's a great thing are the creative aspects and the empathetic aspects so we should already start focusing on those and they're going to become more and more important in the future and more and more of us will have jobs that require creativity and empathy let me talk now about what might be the other maybe the opposite of sleep (laughs) almost (laughs) which is working out Mm. and again that's interesting to me to hear you espouse the value of a work ethic or i'm sorry of a rest ethic But in that, you're telling me to exercise. What do you mean? How does this cohere? Well, again, I guess we already talked about that rest can actually be very active and also just how much the mind is tied to how your body feels, right? So if you take good care of your body, your mind will be so much clearer and sharp and also stay sharp for a long time. There's also this longevity aspect in a way to that. But again, if you look at a lot of very successful people, exercise was a very big part of their rest ethic and i mean there's a lot of good science behind that why exercise is very good for your brain but it's also just if you engaged in very serious exercise again it's like this flow state and it gets you away from all distractions like if you're really doing a heavy workout whatever that might be for you if you're doing trail running or if you i don't know doing crossfit or something when you're in that state you completely disconnect from all your other worries and that is so valuable that disconnection really getting that distance from work essentially and that's one of the many reasons why exercise is such a great rest routine or rest practice and maybe one story in the book it's actually from my phd supervisor terry rudolph he's a great guy and he's also one of the most brilliant quantum physicists out there but he uses running very deliberately so he actually has two different modes of running one he just really goes very hard on like very difficult trails so that's the time where he can focus on nothing but running like he really needs to look okay where do i put my foot and he's fully focused on his body he actually says he tried getting into meditation but it never worked for him but this type of running is basically the same as meditation because he's fully present he's fully focused on his body and what he's doing in the moment so that's his form of moving meditation i think that actually applies to a lot of exercise you 
can see it almost as moving meditation in a way. But then he has a very different form of running as well. And he uses that very specifically for problem solving. I think that one's really interesting. So he actually sits down for 10, 20 minutes before he goes out for a run. And he clearly thinks through a problem he wants to address. So again, if you think about the four stage creativity process, that's essentially the preparation phase. So he primes his mind for this particular problem. And then he goes on a very casual run. So he doesn't have to focus all his attention on what he's doing, but he still has a lot of mental capacity to actually think about the problem. But the great thing about doing that while you're running is you're away from the internet, you're away from even your notebooks. Like those are all great tools, but you don't want to use them all the time because they get you into a very specific mode of working. If you can constantly look something up you don't know, you're not going to think about it tangentially and try and like figure it out in a different and novel way. Similarly, like as a physicist, a lot of the math you do, you just can't do it in your head. You need to write things down. But if you're suddenly forced to keep it all in your head, you look at the problem in a very different way. Essentially, you have to take, because you're forced to do it, you have to take a much broader kind of bird's eye view rather than being stuck in the details. So he uses this casual form of running very deliberately as this sort of problem solving tool. It's so interesting. Yeah. And you talk too. speaking of going intensely, I love that one of the profiles you included was LeBron James and the view that you present of his, I think it was something like, and it might've come from his trainer about, I don't know if it was the recovery never ends. Yeah, exactly. Right. Will you talk about that? Because I think that's a great metaphor for maybe not even a metaphor. It's maybe just a great mentality for all of us to have when it comes to a rest ethic. Absolutely. And it's very related to sleep because he takes his sleep extremely serious. And especially his trainer actually takes his sleep extremely serious. He constantly reminds him, did you get enough sleep? Did you get enough sleep? But he's probably one of the top performers out there in the world. He is so serious about his rest because he knows if he doesn't rest properly and if he doesn't have a solid rest ethic and does everything he can do to recover, he's not going to be at the top of his game. And that might just be half a percent, but if you're playing at the top level, half a percent is going to make a huge, huge difference. And we actually recommend, hey, it doesn't only apply to top athletes, but if you want to be top in your game, whatever that is, if you want to be at your best level in your next business meeting, you do want to take your time off as seriously as a top athlete. Right. So, yeah, he really believes in this idea of recovery never stops. So as soon as the game is over, the first thing he's going to do is, okay, take an ice bath or think about his like shutdown to get the optimal sleep that night and all these different things because he knows if he doesn't do that the next time it actually counts he's not going to be in his ideal shape yeah it makes a lot of sense but it's not necessarily obvious right exactly and obvious that it kind of translates to many many different disciplines as well it's not just those top athletes yeah well, one thing that you touch on and you left it until almost, it felt almost like an afterthought to me in the book, but I'm glad that you included it, which is what, I don't think you use this word, but it's the word I put to it, which is the pitfall, the potential pitfalls. And I think you talk about how without being deliberate, that this can kind of bleed over the rest. So we've talked already about how work can just take over our lives. We can find ourselves busier without more fulfillment or success, but then it's possible to go maybe too far the other way. Will you talk about that? What are the pitfalls of having a rest ethic potentially? Totally. So 
maybe first of all, I think people like us who have quite a lot of freedom and who probably love what they're doing, especially creatives suffer from that a lot because a lot of us actually do generally, genuinely enjoy our work and what we do. I think for us, it's almost the hardest to have a proper work ethic because you want to do the work, but you need to realize, hey, resting, it's an investment into doing better creative work. So I think that's one of the pitfalls for people who already have the flexibility, who don't have a boss telling them, hey, you need to work crazy long hours. But for people who are essentially their own boss, we need to have an even stronger rest ethic because otherwise things end up bleeding into each other. And one of the pitfalls, which I actually realized early on in the book writing process, like I was very lucky with my full-time job that I had at the time, which was applying AI in the creative fields. And I was also writing the book at the same time, but I could essentially make my own schedule. And because of that, I had these different things sort of bleeding into each other. Like I wasn't very strict with, like you said earlier, you have certain days set away for certain things. And even within the days, you have very strict plans in a way of what you do when. At the beginning of the writing process, I didn't have that. So I was never fully on and never fully off. It all just kind of mixed into each other. And whenever there was some free time, I thought, oh, why not do some casual work? I mean, I really enjoy doing the work. So why not fit in some work because I don't have anything to do right now anyway. And I think that can be very tricky. And again, Right now, especially with a lot of people working from home and having this kind of clearly defined border of, say, the office space or even the shutdown routine of the commute, essentially, this gets more and more important and trying to avoid having things just bleed into each other. So it's really about being deliberate with your time and being fully aware with when you do what and why you do it. So sometimes I say it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem with time off because you kind of need to take time off to reflect on what you're doing with your time and how you're feeling to really realize how important time off is and how much of it you actually need. Yeah, it's very meta Yeah, <laughs> right there. Okay, so the last thing I think I want to ask you about in this part of the interview, and then if there's anything that you feel you know is important to talk about, we can certainly do that. But I was really interested in the profile you included from this entrepreneur, Stefan Arstall, and the five-hour workday, right? You include a statement from him where he says, an eight-hour workday for a knowledge worker is like a 16-hour day for the industrial laborer. The eight-hour workday was set up for the body, not the mind. Right. So he's got a company that they sell, is it tower paddle boards? Exactly. And he's implemented at least during a season, I think June to September, they do a five hour workday. Like literally it's mandatory. Is it eight to one or one thirty or something like that? I don't remember the exact times, but it's something like, yeah, eight thirty to one thirty or something. Yeah. So that's pretty nice. I imagine, you know, many people listening, even though admittedly now our routines have changed because so many of us are working from home, but even still thinking, man, if I started at eight and I got off at one, that would be nice. And what he's saying is his business has actually grown to where now it's a multi-million dollar business that probably was a lifestyle business or a passion of his. And he's found a way to make that work. Will you share, how did you connect with his ideas and why did you include him in the book? And what did you learn from him that you think others might find valuable? Yeah, so his idea actually goes back to Henry Ford in a way. And he was inspired by Henry Ford at the, well, 
late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, people were working crazy hours in factories and they were working at least six days a week and really 16 hour shifts sometimes, like ridiculous. And then Ford stepped in and actually realized, hey, if we cut the work day to eight hours and the work week to five days, there's many, many benefits. People will find better ways of working rather than just stupidly grinding things out and trying to compensate with more time. He also realized that there will be fewer errors in his factories and people just overall do better work because they're rested enough. Also, the best people will want to work for him because he offers much better conditions than anyone else. And also he had very economic reasons to do that because he said, like, if people work like crazy and don't have any free times, no one's actually going to buy the cars he's producing. So he had many reasons to shift to this eight hour workday and five day work week, which eventually became the norm. Yeah, it turned out he was right, right? Like all these... assumptions that he had proved out to be a competitive advantage. Totally. He was completely right. But he did this for manual labor, for factory work, right? But now most of us find ourselves doing knowledge work and more and more people will be doing that. But the crazy thing is we're now actually back to basically pre-Ford standards. Most people work actually way longer than the average of Ford's factory workers back in 1920. And It gets even crazy because if you think that we're now doing knowledge work and the mind tires much, much more quickly than the body, if you're doing creative work, you're not going to be the same after eight hours as you're in your first one or two, right? So I think that's what really inspired Stefan Arstel to try this approach of cutting the workday to only five hours, at least during the summer period, which is actually their busiest period. I mean, they make paddleboard so it's really a summer thing and he's really quick to stress that it doesn't mean that that's an easy time period that people can get lazy he really wants people to think about better methods and do the same amount of work in those five hours but if you give people the option they're actually very willing to step up and they come up with new amazing creative ideas to get the same work done or even better work done in a shorter period of time he also says it's not an approach that works for everyone and they're only doing it for basically half the year i think or a couple of months in summer because he does realize some of the things go missing like if you in this mode you're very effective and you really get stuff done during that time but some of the camaraderie of like a normal startup gets lost a little bit like you're missing out on those just water cooler chit chat and whatever so actually for the rest of the year they do a more traditional approach to get that kind of balance so again it's all about balance like you shouldn't go too far on one side or the other but it's definitely possible and he's seen his business grow he had tons of people apply to his company as a result. And he actually had to say no to a lot of people because it doesn't work for everyone. A lot of people come there with the expectation that, okay, that's now a job where I can slack off, but it's actually the opposite. Yeah. That again is one of those things that is, at first glance, it could be very counterintuitive Mm. to say, oh, I'm going to work five hours and this place must have this lax culture and all this. But instead, like you're saying, it forces real meaningful discussions about process and even what we choose to focus on. and Exactly. And it forces you to think about how you work rather than just doing the work, right? And I think that's something most of us don't really think about, but we could get so much benefit from just questioning our assumptions sometimes. And like, is this actually the best way of doing my work? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Okay. Before we transition to the enlightening lightning round, 
let me just ask, is there anything that we haven't talked about that feels like it, you know, be valuable to talk about? I think we covered a lot of really good stuff here. I guess the one thing I'd like to say is I want people to lose that feeling of guilt associated with not working and that only things that feel hard are actually valuable because that's really not true. Think about taking time off as an investment into your creativity and into your productivity, especially with machines taking over more and more of the busy work. You're not going to out-busy the machines no matter how many hours you put in. So try and already focus on this creativity and empathy component of your work and try and double down on that. And you'll also realize that you need a solid rest ethic to become good at those things. And also one thing that we talk about quite a bit in the book, but I don't think we've touched on too much yet, is this idea of visible busyness. So many of us are just performing busy without actually getting anything done. I mean, I'm based in Japan and it's probably worse here than anywhere else. People just required to be in the office until their boss has left. Like no one leaves before the boss, even if there's nothing to do. But I think everywhere we know this, or just you have to CC everyone in the company just to show people, oh, look, I'm busy. I'm working. I'm doing stuff. But a lot of it is just acting busy. It's not actually getting anything done. So I'd like people to reassess where they're actually productive and where they're just visibly busy. I think that's great. And I hope that people hear that and that really lands with them. You know, this might be a few degrees off what you're saying, but this is a thought that's helped me personally over the last few years to combat the feelings of guilt for not being productive enough. I think about Gutenberg and I think about, I have no idea what that guy's daily routine was, <laughs> if he even had one, what his addictions were, you know, what his hygiene, like any of that. But the guy did one thing and our world was forever changed, you know? And it's like, whether he worked himself from, you know, morning to night, or he took all the time off and just followed his passion and came to this one thing. So again, I don't know that that's useful, but it's like, man, none of us really know the impact of our actions on subsequent generations or even the people around us right now. And as you're saying, if we get lost in this productivity theater, you know, I don't think we'll ever find the fulfillment or make the contribution that's possible if we give ourselves the gift of cultivating a rest ethic. So anyway, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Okay. Before we do transition, let me just check in with you. How are you doing? I'm feeling great. Thanks. And I love the name Enlightening Lightning Round. Yeah. For the first few, it was just Lightning Round. And then I thought... Let's have it be something it's great. that could actually make a difference for listeners. So my aim here is to ask the question briefly and for the most part to just stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. I might pull on a few responses, but for the most part, we'll keep moving. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... <laughs> I'd say life is like an ultra marathon. I think if you run a marathon, you can power through from beginning to end. You can just keep running. If you run an ultra marathon, well, if you've got Jurig or someone, you can probably also power through. <laughs> but the average person doing an ultra marathon will have to take rests in between and will have to take breaks. I got into ultra running way earlier than most people. I was always the youngest at all the events I did. But one thing I was very good at, I think, was pacing myself. So from the very beginning, even if it was like a 16-hour run I would do, I had a very clear schedule of 25-minute running, 5-minute walking, 25-minute running, 5-minute walking from the very beginning. And I used those 5-minute walking times as recovery. I would remind myself to eat, to drink, all these different things. 
and then I was always the last of the pack at the beginning of a race. But then later on, I would actually still be fresh when other people completely burned out. And I would kind of casually jog past them after 10 hours of running or so. I think if you approach life in the same way, in a sort of cycle of, okay, time on, but then also clearly have this time off baked in and have it baked in way before you think you really need it, way before you hit that burnout point you're going to have a much better time and you're going to have much more sustainability. So I'd say life is like an ultra marathon. <laughs> yeah. I love that perspective. And you share something in one of your profiles about, and I don't remember the trainer's name, but George St. Pierre. Favorite Sahabi. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. So for anybody who hasn't picked this book up yet and what Max is talking about right now, especially if you're an MMA fan, there's some great insights about that very thing from another sport as well. So Awesome. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Hmm. I think there's probably quite a few things I believe that not too many people believe, but I'd say basically the whole book we wrote, this idea that time off is so valuable. Unfortunately, still a lot of people think that's kind of crazy and don't believe in that. So maybe the truth is you can often get much more work done, especially more impactful work, if you're actually taking a step back and work less, but work less in a very conscious way. Yes. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I don't want to harp on on the same thing over and over again, but I think it would say, is all your hard work actually working? It's a very simple statement, but I think once you dig deeper into it, you're going to uncover quite a few interesting truths. And the answer might be, yes, it is actually working and great, wonderful for you. But a lot of people also might get an insight that actually their hard work isn't really working and that will then lead them down a really interesting path as well. No doubt. Okay. Question number four, what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? So I always read fiction and nonfiction. I have this daily routine. I read two in parallel. So maybe also with the gifted, I can split it into these two. I think for fiction, it's probably Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. It's a wonderful book. And we actually have a profile on him in our book as well. He had this idea. He didn't call it that way, but essentially time off microdosing. That's what we called it. Like he basically says, if you can't enjoy the little joys in life, you're not going to enjoy a crazy vacation or something right so you have to start with those little things and i think the practice we have for his profile is actually go out and notice little things every single day that bring a smile to your face and write them down if you see some kids playing and he brings a smile to you write it down if you see a wonderful flower write it down those kind of little things so siddhartha is a wonderful book on the nonfiction side probably surely you're joking mr feynman by richard feynman I read it when I was still in high school. And I mean, at the time, I think I was already very set on becoming a physicist, but I don't think anyone else inspired me more than Richard Feynman. And it's kind of weird, but so I grew up just with my mom. I didn't really know my dad, but I almost felt like Richard Feynman to me was sort of this father replacement, a father figure in a way. And I absolutely loved everything he did and he wrote, and he basically inspired me to become a physicist. And another wonderful book I think I've given to quite a few, especially writer or creative friends, is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. It's also a wonderful book about, well, I think even it says in the subtitle, a book about writing and life or something like that. 
and it's really a lot of great advice for any creative but also for anyone going through life yeah awesome thank you okay so question number five you've traveled a ton what's one travel hack meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable that's a good question i'm not sure if i have a very specific hack i mean i always travel with earplugs and a sleeping mask but i have to admit i even sleep at home in my own bed by myself alone with earplugs and sleeping masks so it's not really a travel hack one thing i do in every new place i go to well actually there's two things and one of them could be a travel hack i take my running gear with me and the first thing i do in a new place is i go for a run because it's a wonderful way to explore a new city and you see it in a completely different way i think if you're there as a tourist you're probably going to stick to buses or public transportation and you're just going to go from site to site in a way almost but if you're going for a run you actually see what's in between those things and you see the real city and another thing related to that I really like working in coffee shops. Even if I'm at home here in Tokyo, I do, well, now it's a bit different with the whole COVID situation, but usually I do probably most of my work in coffee shops. And I really like to work in a coffee shop in a new city because I think you actually get a real feeling and a sense of the place. Like if you just go from one tourist destination to another you're not actually experiencing the city and the place but if you just sit in a local coffee shop for a while you get a really good sense of like what the place is all about yeah that's awesome thank you okay question number six what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well there's probably quite a few things I've been doing. I used to party quite hard and I make music on the side as well and I perform in clubs and often you get home at like 6, 7 a.m. and many, many drinks later. I probably dialed down a little bit on that. I'm actually less worried about the drinking part. I mean, this is also not ideal for your health, but the one thing it really destroyed was my sleep. And as we covered already, sleep is so fundamental. So I guess most of the things I've done were all in a way helping me improve my quality of sleep. And maybe another one that's not directly related to sleep. I think about a year ago, I started doing a three-day fast once a quarter. So I'm doing that for kind of health span reasons as well and also it's a nice mental practice just kind of convincing yourself hey it's actually not that difficult and like if i ever see myself in a very difficult situation where i have to live that way it's actually not that big of a problem wow all right thank you for that i know by the way from looking at your instagram feed you have many passions of music <laughs> and baking and uh, lots reading. of noble leisure. Yeah, lots of noble leisure. You live, you live what you teach, no doubt. What's one thing you wish every American knew? That's a tricky question. Also, as a non-American, I mean, I'm German. I lived in the UK for a long time. Now I'm based in Japan. Sometimes looking at America or the US from the outside is a bit interesting. And I absolutely love your country. And you guys have amazing people, amazing stuff going on and also wonderful places just geographically. And yeah, I definitely, once this whole thing is over, I want to go back and explore much, much more. But sometimes it feels like you forget or you as a very, very generalization, I hope I'm not going to piss off a lot of people here. <laughs> it's okay. 
you forget that there's actually stuff outside the US as well and that there's not just okay here's some oil here's some wine and cheese and Europe nice stuff and <laughs> some tourist destinations so maybe I'd like every American to know that you're not necessarily the center of the world but maybe getting away from the political thing and more towards what we were talking about earlier there's maybe one story and John my co-author can't join us today but maybe I can bring that one up here and it's more related to the idea of time off so his granddad was like a typical Texan but he was a very clever businessman so he was very well focused on business he was very driven as well but the guy really loved fishing and all of his friends were giving a hard time whenever he'd go out fishing like why are you wasting that time why are you like out there doing that you could be getting work done right and john's granddad basically replied to them well sometimes i'm out there fishing for fish but a lot of the time i'm out there fishing for epiphanies and I think, again, it comes down to this, like, take your time off seriously and see it as an investment into what you're doing. And that's something I'd also like Americans to know, or I'd like the whole world to know, basically, that you need this time off and incubation to get big things done. Yeah, that really resonates with me, by the way, because my father was a very successful entrepreneur who I think he didn't have a rest ethic <laughs> and he died at 64 years old. So I think there's something to be said for that. Okay. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? <sighs> I think that's an area where I'm still learning a lot and probably have to learn a lot, but I'd say one thing, and I have to remind myself of that every time as well, but asking yourself, what does that situation look like from the other person's perspective, right? taking that step back and like getting out of your own head a little bit. And again, it's all about practicing empathy. Like what does this look like from the other person's perspective? It probably looks very different from what you think in the moment. So that's quite helpful. But yeah, I need to remind myself of this and many other things constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I have a teacher who told me no matter what it is we learn or think we know, we forget, we forget, mm. we forget. Yeah. yeah. Same with the book, actually, like I'm constantly, I mean, we wrote this book about time off and about the rest ethic. It doesn't mean that our rest ethic is perfect by any stretch. Like it's constant practice and it's constant improvement and constant learning. Yeah, no doubt. Okay. The next question is about money. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something that you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? Mm. Well, I'm not sure how qualified I am to give financial advice. Full disclosure, <laughs> I'm still paying off my student loans. So, <laughs> But I would say, and maybe it's actually tied to that, I would say invest in yourself, right? I mean, I could have paid off my student loans a long time ago, but I actually made investment into, well, first the education itself was an investment in myself, but then also we self-published this book, which actually costs us a lot of money, which we haven't fully made it up yet. But I believe in the long term, it's more than going to pay for itself in terms of money, but also in terms of connection, in terms of the lives we change, in terms of the meaning we generate in our own life and in those of others. So again, in general, like, I put a lot of money towards myself, whether that's improving my sleep hygiene. I invest in new gadgets that help me sleep. Like I have a cooling blanket. I have like all these sort of things. And these are all investments in myself and in improving myself. I pay for a coach. I pay for all these other things that really help me get better and 
will pay long-term dividends. So it's kind of like compound interest, actually. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do? The best thing is really to check out the book. That's really what we want people to look at. And there's also a lot of stories about us in there. So if people are actually interested in me and John, you can find it on Amazon or in your local bookstores. They should also be able to order it. And you can also find it on our website, timeoffbook.com. Both John and I have our own websites, mine is maxfrenzel.com. I'm sure you can find John easily via Google as well. And we're also quite active, I think, on Instagram. So for me, that's mffrenzel. If you want to see me making music or bake bread or do any of those other things, that's a good place. Awesome. Okay. And as a thank you for sharing your time and your experience and your wisdom with me and with everybody listening, I've gone online to kiva.org, the micro lending site. And I've made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur named Nada in Jordan. So a woman who will use this money to buy rocks and sand for her workshop to make mosaic art, which she will then sell to improve the quality of life for herself, for her family and people in her community. That is so wonderful. Thank you so much. Can I ask you, how do you choose the people you decide to give those microloans to? Well, they're all women. For sure. So that's the first criteria. And what I will do is if my guest has some geographic tie, if they either are from somewhere, living somewhere, or they do work somewhere, I will primarily look there because most of these are in developing countries and not everyone, I'm not aware of any geographical location to search. I will often go to India because I know there's so much need in India. There's need everywhere, but I'll look there and then what I will do is if they're not available in India, I will look anywhere. But during the pandemic, one of the things that's happened is that groups have come together even more. So what's interesting is where there were a lot of individuals before, now they've really gathered in collectives. So now they're asking for like $500,000 microloans to support a community. So I actually will still go look for an individual. And because there are fewer, I'll just say, oh you know, here's one in Jordan or here's one. So it's not quite random, but there's some element of randomness in it. Still, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Kiva's amazing. And then what I didn't realize is that many people still don't know about the work Kiva does or micro lending. And I won't earn any interest from this at all. In fact, on some of these, I lose the loan, but instead the model they use is the field partner who facilitates or administrates the distribution of the money will then earn the interest and it will fund their operations. Yeah. And what I love about this is it's not charity. It's not some white male somewhere coming in with money with strings attached. It's trusting that they have the innate, you know, knowledge and capability to use the capital wisely. And I think, man, for less than the cost of a tank of gas or a meal out, I can help change life somewhere, hopefully. So are you following up with those people? Do you see what the impact of the loan actually was? Yeah. So one of the requirements for each of these recipients is that they do report back. So I do get an email update and then I get That's also wonderful. a financial. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. cool. So thank you for that. Okay. So the last part of our interview is about creativity and writing. A few questions about how you got this book done and what advice you would have for others. So if you're good to keep going, we'll just push through a few more questions here. 
So let me ask you this. You talked about how you connected with John. The fact you wrote a Medium article, he read it, he invited you on his podcast. A few months later, he invited you to write a book. (laughs) Prior to that, did you have any intention of writing a book? Not really. I mean, if you would have told me probably three years ago that I'm going to be a published author by this time we speak in 2020, I might have told you you're crazy. So there was never really any serious intention. I feel like everyone sort of like in the back of their mind says, oh, one day I might want to write a book. And actually, if you really want to hear the backstory, it's even a bit crazier because John, at the time when we started getting to know each other, he was also doing another business with a friend, which was about basically breaking down the lessons of books and doing one week courses with people around that book. And it was still in the beta phase and I joined just trying it out. And one of the books we were discussing, I think it was actually Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. And one of the exercises we went through was sort of, I think it was just preparation for something else. But one of the exercises we did and shared with the group was basically mapping out projects that we might like urgent and like important and those sort of things. And like, I just threw in not at all urgent and not very important. Hey, one day I want to write a book. And I shared that with the group. And that's actually what got John thinking about, hey, I should ask that guy to write the book together. So it's even more kind of layers of weird coincidences that even led him to ask that question. But I never really saw myself as a writer. And if you would have asked my teachers in high school, they would have probably also said, no, that guy's never going to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) And the funny thing is, I mean, I'm German. I could have not written that book in German. I don't know, something about my mind. Like, I'm much more comfortable writing in English than in German, which is kind of a weird thing, but it just suits me better. And also, I'm someone who processes thoughts much better in writing than in conversation. And it's very interesting. John is actually kind of the opposite. So John, he actually likes to start from recording himself speak or a lot of his contributions to the book also actually started out as podcast interviews so discussions with people so he goes that way from talking to then turning it into writing for me the writing itself is actually the thought process and i can only really get my thoughts clear if i write them down so i hope it's not too obvious to your listeners that i'm more coherent in writing sometimes than in speaking (laughs) no i I mean, first of all, you're very coherent (laughs) in speaking. Absolutely. But I think that's pretty normal that many people do. I've heard it said, I don't really know what I think until I write it. Mm, You know, I've definitely heard that. It's remarkable to me in your, in what you're sharing about, first of all, the power of a declaration, really, that here's this, and then someone hears it and then there's energy behind it and it becomes a thing. I totally believe in this idea of just showing your work and also showing the process and also showing things you don't think are ready yet or you're not comfortable with. I mean, what's it? Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art talks a lot about this resistance once you get past that. And Austin Cleon in his book, which is called Show Your Work also, just get the stuff out there, get the process out there and amazing things will start to happen. You'll build your tribe, people will see it and all these coincidences or things that seem like coincidences will start to accumulate. Yeah, that synchronicity, right? So how did you know? I mean, even though you had this clarity at some level of someday, not in the urgent or important quadrant, I want to write a book or maybe I'll write a book. And then this invitation comes from John. Why did you accept? 
That's a good question. I mean, we got to know each other a little bit. Like we talked on a podcast and we realized, hey, we believe in exactly the same thing and we have the same mission. We stayed in touch afterwards. We went through some of those exercises uh, around those books together. And I mean, he's a great guy. I'd already, I think I considered him a friend at that point. Now we're, I think, very close, but we just really clicked, I think. And I realized, hey, if I'm going to do this together with him a together we can do something that neither of us alone could do to that level at least and we can do something incredibly meaningful and it just felt like the right thing to do also i can't remember exactly but just the way he wrote his email was really wonderful i mean he's from austin texas and he's very texan in a very positive way i think it even opened up with something like I don't know. I'm a descendant of cowboys and we don't make offers lightly. So here it is. And then like this whole <laughs> email and just the way he expressed it was also wonderful. I just I felt like I had to say yes. And wow. I also one of my best friends and accountability partners. So we do this yearly goal setting and then we have a monthly call to check in on each other. She's a best selling author in Taiwan and She's for a long time been encouraging me. I mean, she was the first one who actually told me, hey, you should actually write articles. This is Yu Ying Huang. Exactly. Yeah. You saw her in the acknowledgments. Yes. I wanted to <laughs> ask you about this because you said she taught you how to be a fucking bohemian writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? That was an inside joke that probably she would have gotten. But I got a call from her, I think one night where she was like, depressed somewhere sitting in Paris in her flat and like she was writing all day and just like I don't know things just didn't work out and she was really in this depressed situation sitting there with a glass of wine on her balcony and she was like what the fuck am I doing <laughs> I'm a stereotypical kind of bohemian writer and no I learned a lot from her and she encouraged me to get into writing and then pursue it more seriously and the amazing thing is I'm so happy about that Last week, we sold the rights to a Taiwanese publisher for a Chinese version of the book, and she's going to be the one translating it. It was actually her publisher who contacted us. So that's a really meaningful connection as well. That is great. Congratulations on that. That's Thanks. awesome. So what was your writing process like with John? How did you approach the project? How did you outline it? How did you schedule it? How did you divide the labor? How did you end up working together? What was the process like? So I think John and I, we both spend quite a bit of time in software startups and building software products. So we had that background and we actually approached the book in a very similar way. We started with a prototype and then we actually put that in front of 20 to 30 test readers and we asked them very specific feedback questions. And very early on, we actually wanted to have the book just as a series of profiles. So strip out all the other stuff. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book, I think it's called Daily Rituals or Daily yeah, Habits. Mason, Mason Curry. Exactly. Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. That's the one. We basically wanted to do something similar just around the idea of time off. And we had this idea of this biblical theme where like the first half is historic people, so Old Testament, and the second half is kind of current people. And we wrote a prototype, well, a draft with I think five or six profiles like that. And our test readers really loved it. And the 
core idea resonated with them. But a lot of people were asking for a bit more depth and a bit more kind of stuff that holds it all together. And that's when we started really writing the narrative around it and those deep dive chapters in the end. And now the profiles are just sprinkled in there to basically, well, A, confirm that the science can actually be applied by real people and then also give very practical advice. But it's now all held together by this much more coherent narrative. So that all came from just putting it in front of test readers. And yeah, then we continued with that. Also very early on, we realized because it's so based on profiles, we want to have it very beautiful and we want to have beautiful illustrations for the profiles. So John and I actually both on Instagram posted a story, hey, we're looking for an illustrator for our book. And some random person who's following me, but who I don't personally know, reached out and hey, this is amazing illustrator based in Tokyo, Maria Sasuki, you have to reach out to her. So I connected with Maria and it turns out we actually have a lot of mutual friends and we're actually quite connected, <laughs> but it was just wonderful because her style, I mean, you've seen the book, it's, I mean, it's weird for me to say it, but it's absolutely beautiful and it's mostly thanks to Maria and our designer. And it really guided, I think, the process a lot as well. Her style, it actually influenced the way we approached the book. And I mean, you've seen it. We have also these time off pages in the book, which is basically a blank spread with a beautiful illustration and actually call to action to, hey, put the book down and go for a walk or something. And there's all these little things that actually influence us quite a bit in the writing process from working with Maria. And then once we had a first final draft, we gave it to our editor and Maynard. And I mean, it's my first book. I had no idea how important a good editor is and how much impact they have on the final book. So it really feels like, I think we mentioned that in the acknowledgements as well, we came to her with this crazy unwieldy block of marble kind of upside down and whatever and she saw the beauty that was hidden underneath and made us chisel away at all the random stuff that the reader actually doesn't care about and made us rearrange the whole thing and it's really thanks to her that we have this hopefully very beautiful and coherent narrative as well i think as an author you feel like everything is really important. You put in all this research and you're also telling your own story. So to you, everything seems super important. But I think a good editor basically turns us around and like makes you look at everything through the reader's lens. And you realize that a lot of it is actually very boring, completely besides the point and just confuses your actual message. So working with an editor was probably the single most transformative experience of the entire writing process. Well, how did you find your editor and how did you know that she was the one for you when you finally made contact? So we were looking at books that we admired and trying to, can we find out who the editor was? And we were also just looking at blog posts of well-known and well-respected writers who were actually talking about their writing process. And I can't remember, unfortunately, who the person was. I'd like to say it was James Altucher, who wrote about his writing process and mentioned her in that and how he worked with her. And we just reached out to her and a few others and set up like a Zoom call, essentially. And we just clicked immediately. And after that one hour discussion, we knew, okay, she's the right one. We want to work with her. And yeah, it was 
the perfect decision and we spend months working extremely closely with her and the amount of time she put into this is incredible like we paid her a good amount but i'd say it was not enough like she deserved more than that yeah that's a thing that i think is so key is finding an editor who really believes in your project and has a vision for it that's congruent with yours but like you said is distant enough from it to look at it through the lens of the reader that's great. Let me go back to your interaction with John. You mentioned it now hundreds of hours, you know, even though you haven't been together in person yet online, you know, Zoom and probably other other communication over the internet. What kind of structure did you have in place? What kind of interaction? And then what tools did you use? Kind of maybe at a little granular level, Dropbox, Google Docs. Did you do Word doc with track changes? Like how did you divide the labor? How did you actually work together? How'd that come together? Yeah, I think going into it, that was actually probably the thing I was worried about the most when saying yes to John, the idea of co-authoring a book. I'm someone who very much enjoys solitude and also doing my own thing. And actually, we have a chapter in the book on solitude and also what we call collaborative solitude. And that's really what we ended up doing. And it worked wonderfully. But I mean, once we decided to do it, and once we had this idea of the rough structure in mind, it was actually not that difficult because of the way the book is structured. It is these separate deep dive chapters, which really cover one particular topic like exercise, like sleep, like solitude and then also the profiles are pretty individual and encapsulated so we basically started out by distributing this which profile do you want to take which deep dive do you want to take and then one of us did the first draft so i can't speak for john's research process but my research process i basically used evernote for everything so Per profile, per deep dive, I had like one big Evernote note with my research notes and then a separate one where I actually started writing the draft itself. And then we put everything into Google Docs. So in the beginning, we had, again, one Google Doc per profile, one per deep dive. And once one of us was comfortable with, hey, here's a first rough draft of the thing, then we would actually hand it over to the other person. So it's wonderful if you have a very good relationship with a co-author, and maybe relationship is not the only thing, but you need to match in a right way. But you have this editor role almost baked in from the very beginning because you write the thing and then you give it to someone else who looks at that with completely different eyes. And also because John and I have quite different backgrounds, I have more of this academic background, whereas John has more of a storytelling background. It's actually a really nice match. And then basically we went in and we used Google Docs for everything and we used suggestions so we could keep track of everything. And it was not like a hard edit. Like I could say, okay, I'd rather say it this way. And then John either accepts it or he leaves a comment saying, oh no, I actually disagree. I thought the original was better. Or maybe there's a completely different way we could say this. And I think also the time zone difference was actually wonderful because we basically worked, well, asynchronous and we were rarely working on the same document at the same time and it was almost like every morning when I got up it was kind of like Christmas it was like oh what did John do like what new updates are there in the text and so it was really nice actually this and it worked surprisingly well the whole remote collaboration and at least once a week we'd actually schedule a zoom call at times much more frequently but at least once a week we'd actually had like a one hour check-in to talk about stuff related to the writing process itself, but also, I mean, we self-published, so we had to build a whole team. We established a company around that, and there's all sorts of other things we had to talk about. And that was also the thing we did once a week on our call. Wow. What was the hardest thing for you 
about getting this book done? That's a very good and very tricky question. I mean, I think realizing when we handed off the first draft to our editor, I thought, okay, we're almost done. Like the writing process is done. Like now it's in the hands of our editor. She'll give it back to us. We'll just accept or reject some of the suggestions. This, this is like the people there. at mile 20 at a marathon going, you're almost there. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, you've never done this. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, even mile 20, I would say probably it's the people at mile one saying, oh, we're almost there. We're almost there. Yeah. But yeah. no, like. When you write a book, you realize that's only when the hard work really, really starts. And I'm so glad Anne did that. But the first call with her was quite demotivating and brutal after she had a go at the document. It's like, guys, I can see the beauty in there, but there's a lot of work to do. And we completely need to take this thing apart and restructure it and do all these other things. So it was brutal, but also... I mean, again, that's probably the mark of a good editor. It wasn't just taking it apart. She also had a very clear plan of attack of how we're going to do it and why it's going to be so, so much better once we do all those things. So, yes, it was brutal, but at the same time, it was extremely motivating. And it was like, okay, yes, I can see you gave me the reasons. So we need to do this. And I'm willing to put in that extra work. I think that was probably hard. Yeah, probably the hardest thing, actually. (laughs) I mean, that's related to the writing itself. Then we're self-published, so there's a lot of other more marketing-related things which were quite tricky. Probably the hardest lesson we learned and also the most expensive lesson we learned was hiring a PR agency. If I do it again, I think we'd both do it without because, I mean, earlier I said our editor, she would have deserved so much more even though we paid her well. The PR agency, I think that's kind of slightly the opposite approach. And I think Ryan Holiday talks about this in his book, Perennial Seller. And I think he actually explicitly says don't work with a PR agency. But the comment there is, if you really believe in your book, and you should, if you're publishing a book, you should be super excited about getting that into people's hands. The best marketing you can do is just actually getting it into people's hands. PR agencies are expensive. Think about how many books you could buy and just give away to people for that same amount of money. And that's exactly what we saw. I mean, we did still give away a lot of books and just a word of mouth we got from that. It's so much more valuable than anything a PR agency could ever do for us. Yeah, that's actually exactly where I was going to take the conversation (laughs) because I know I mentioned this to you in my email requesting this interview, but I told you that I found an article I think was written in Fast Company. And I wondered if that was a result of you guys and your hustle or if your PR agency or something else. So that one that actually came for our PR agency, I'm very grateful. I mean, I'm not saying they did a bad job. It's just considering the amount of money we spend on that compared to certain other things like the editor, it just seems out of proportion. And we probably could have gotten a lot of those things a lot cheaper. The Fast Company article, that was probably the single biggest impact. But actually, it's very interesting. Those big name publications and articles getting them in there, you sell surprisingly little copies as a result. I mean, we published through Amazon KDP and Ingram Spark, so we can actually track exactly when we sell how many books. And we were monitoring a little bit of like how much impact that had. I think at the most that article sold 50 books which is really not a lot. Like it barely made a dip onto our usual sales anyway. But those big articles give you credibility 
and amazing connections. I mean, you reached out as a result of that article. We had a bunch of other people reach out to us about that article. Also, if we proactively approach someone else from here on, we can link to that article. It just gives us a lot of credibility. But in terms of book sales, what's actually much more effective is podcasts because you really build that connection with the listener. I mean, they're there with you for like half an hour, an hour, an hour and a half maybe. And in terms of conversion, like the reach might be much, much smaller, but the conversion is so much higher and you build much more meaningful connection. People actually reach out to you afterwards. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. I found Ryan Holiday's book, Perennial Seller, to be really, really valuable as well and Absolutely. really thought-provoking. And you probably recall this from it as well. What you've said, you know, I think is right on about getting the book in people's hands. But the part where he also mentioned one of the most powerful things you can do to market your book is your next book. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So that's great. Well, I think the last thing that I want to ask you about here is what advice or encouragement would you leave a listener with who's either thinking about getting their own book done or they're in the process, but they're maybe stuck somewhere. What do you say to somebody who wants to to finish their own book? Yeah, I think it comes back to what we talked about a little bit ago. It's really showing your work, putting your work out there, even if you're not comfortable with it, even if you feel it's not polished yet, even if you have this, oh, what if people criticize me or what if people learn something about me that maybe not quite willing to share yet, put your work out there. A, once it's out there, you kind of have this commitment and people are going to ask you about, hey, how's it going with the writing and like, how are you coming along? You have this accountability, but also amazing things start to happen once people see that and it might take a while like at the beginning it might be a very frustrating process because you don't actually get any reads or you don't get any likes or whatever but i think if you're consistent see it as your work process anyway if you want to get towards the book and just make that a bit more public and i think over time the connections will start to build up those random coincidences will start to build up and amazing things will happen and yeah I think that's the best thing you can do is really put your work out there and just get started. Yeah. You can't finish if you don't start. Exactly. I know you're a musician. So (laughs) how do you answer that question when you write music or no music? That is a great question. And it actually depends a little bit on what I'm writing on. So A, yes, definitely music. I think there's very few times where I not listen to music while writing but it depends a little bit on what I'm writing on what kind of music I actually listen to so I think for most of the writing process I kept one album on repeat it's by Daisuke Tanabe uh can't remember what was the title of the album he's got a lot of amazing music and it's very experimental electronic there's no lyrics which is very important if you're actually in the writing process for me at least like i can't really write with lyrics it's funny i can code like when i'm programming i can do that easily with music with lyrics but writing not at all so yeah, I'd recommend any writer to check out Daisuke Tanabe. He's a great guy as well. Uh, so <laughs> Awesome. Is it D-A-I-S-U-K-E? D-A-I-S-U-K-E-T-A-N-A-B-E. Yeah. Tanabe. Okay, cool. And then in your view, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? <sighs> 
keep them short. <laughs> I think that's probably one of my biggest faults. I can write quite long and complicated and nested sentences. Actually, thinking back in high school, I remember my German teacher, I often got like essays back and she was like, what is this? Because I managed, I mean, German, I think is even better for this than English, but I managed to write sentences that spanned literally two pages because oh, you can yeah. just keep those nested subclauses. And I don't know why I was thinking that way. Maybe I thought it made me sound smart or something, but I've gotten definitely better than that. But I still think I'm tending on the more complicated sentences. So keep it simple. Keep it as simple as possible. I think also a good editor will tell you that. And I'm sure Anne reminded me countless times of keeping things simple. <laughs> yeah. And your reader will thank you for sure. Yeah. Actually, also on that one point, maybe read out your own sentences aloud. That's one thing I realized, like write it and then try and read it. I often tripped over my own writing when I tried reading it out loud. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I had a guest who shared Donald Robertson, who wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, He's friends with Ryan Holiday. He said that he uses Microsoft Word's feature that will read aloud. Ah, that's cool. And I do that. I have a weekly email that I send and I always read it aloud and I catch mm. things, you know, either that don't sound normal or they're typos because I do that. As you know, it's very hard to edit our own work, but that's one. And then what's interesting is I'm preparing for a podcast now and I'm reading. I like to read with the audiobook, And as I'm listening, I see that this author has changed a lot of the sentences in the reading of it. That's and I was like, that's really interesting to me. I think if he had read aloud, he would have fixed it and, you know, not fixed, but he would have made the text match the audio. I thought that was really interesting. So anyway. Okay. Well, Max, I've really enjoyed, as I said, I love your book. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Likewise. It was wonderful. Again, it was one of those random coincidences, right? Yeah, totally. And even the connection in Japan, I have, totally. I have a story sometime I'd love to tell you about my experience in Japan. It changed my life. Well, I hope you're going to come back visiting at some point as well, once travel is a thing again. For sure. For sure. And when you make your way through Utah again, which is the center of the universe, if you don't know that already. <laughs> I've not been to Utah yet, actually, so I definitely need to. <laughs> yeah. When you get around to coming, please let me know. You're always Would welcome. Love to as a guest in our home. Okay, my friend, I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Stay in touch. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at or by visiting goodliving.com.